Everyone, shake it out. I know it's 1030, but we're going to have a lively discussion. So get excited. Jason, don't fall asleep. I won't. I know it's late for you. I won't. I'm drinking alcohol, right. so I think I'll be good. Damn, That'll girl. Good. That's not good. Yeah, you're going to fall right asleep. <laughs> you need to be drinking Adderall. All right. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I am joined by my two very best friends, Jason in D.C. What's up? And Trisha in L.A. Hello! Hi, guys. Is that properly properly chipper? (laughs) Yeah, that was very chipper. So, uh, first of all, to everyone listening, Happy New Year, Uh, but we are talking to you from the past. Uh, Christmas just ended over here. We all just got back from doing our Christian Christmas things. Uh, the Christian ones of us on the podcast, anyway. <laughs> oh, I, I did Christian. I did Christmas things because there's no escaping Christmas in the United States. Mm-mm. No, the way it should be. Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. No happy holidays. I'm kidding. Yeah, ridiculous. yeah Mr. Religious <laughs> over here. As I asked you when we spoke on the phone, Chris, did you go to midnight mass? And what did I say? You said midnight mass. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I was kidding. Two things. You're like, what One, an outlandish thing to ask me. I heard a rumor that Midnight Mass actually comes from a satanic ritual that <gasps> somehow found its way into Catholicism. And I, I, read up on, I, know, I read up on Satanism over this past week, mostly to piss off my aunt because she's really religious. I made like a big show of Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hello, Christmas. I couldn't fucking <laughs> Uh, oh please! You know what? I just I just spent the last six days with my family. Nobody listens to this podcast. They're all like, "It's too long. Can you make it shorter?" I'm like, "Feel free to pause it." <laughs> Who, do you not read a book because you're like, "It's too long. I can't finish it in one sitting." Oh, my family's better than um, yours. I spent well, time with my family, and they told me they listened to my podcast, and also new members requested it. Could you tell us where it is and how I can get okay, it? Okay, who, who are they, team? I hope they're team Chris. We need more team Chris. Everyone listening, they I did want to say that live. I show, mean, they like you, Jason. Jason. They like Jason, but you know, Chris. I mean, of course, V is always team Jason. All right, at least I have oh. V. Oh, no, oh. I have friends who are team Jason, which I find. Offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you have them call in last time? I got my ass kicked last time. <laughs> All right, I do. I I do want to bring up something from my time at home. What? So I visited my cousin, and she's got two boys. They're six and two, and because of that age span, for the past six years in her house, it's like being in a library. Like you get shushed every second because at any point in time, either the children are screaming at the top of their lungs or one of them or both of them are sleeping. So it's always, shh, 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 the baby, shh, shh, shh. However, every TV in the house is on, right? Perfectly appropriate for dishes to be washed. And I'm like, okay. The other thing is that we're not allowed to say shut up or hell around the children. And you get corrected. While we were there, over the children's heads, we talked about religion. We were watching this woman speak on YouTube. and She was talking about post-traumatic slave disorder. She was talking about rape and murder. The children will only watch Power Rangers or other shows where people are beating the shit out of each other. And even though, <laughs> even though they are black boys, they have every kind and color of fake gun, rifle, laser blaster, and grenade launcher on the market. And I was like, if I can't say hell, 
What, like, how does that work exactly? Like, how does that explain that? What's the lesson? Jason, do you curse around your kids? I, I mean, we all know you curse about them. I curse oh, about curse. them. Yes. No, I don't, I don't curse in front of them. They're, my kids are also – it's just so interesting where different people draw lines. And, it, you know, I, I know I'm not – I don't know if there, there's a right answer. My kids are not allowed to have guns. They're not allowed to watch violent stuff. We don't do a lot of, like, character stuff, Power Rangers, Avengers. Like, we just don't do much of that stuff. Now, that said, my parents cannot be stopped from cursing. My kids just know. We've never had a conversation about it, but like my parents will like get a, angry about something and like a slew of profanity, you know, just <laughs> comes out of their mouths. And then they're like, sorry, kids. But my kids have never emulated and we've never had a conversation about it. And I don't feel the need to because they haven't emulated. So, so I'm, I'm not as like trying to get other people to behave in the lines that I behave in, but I, I'm, I behave within pretty narrow lines around my And I, I didn't want to really engage my family about what was happening in the house because like people are very sensitive about their parenting. You can't talk yeah. to people about their parenting. And I get that, right? You're, you're trying to make it happen. You've got like these hellions, your life is ruined. You know what I mean? I get it. <laughs> your life is but, ruined. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the concern was like, well, if they hear us say hell and shut up at home, they'll say it in school. Mm. And I was like, but you're not concerned about the fact that whenever they get anything pointy, they point it at the nearest human being and go, pew, pew. Like, that doesn't concern you. You have black children. That's fine. Homicide is just fine, but don't say yeah, that's no. fine. You know, I'm so rigid when it comes to my ideas hanging together. And I guess with parenting, that doesn't always happen. You can't, you got to do what makes sense for you in the moment. And sometimes it's irrational and I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to give people the pass. make it hard, man. They make it hard those motherfuckers. That's what that's what you got to understand like oof, they're some tough negotiators those kids. So let's jump into some topics. Uh first thing up, the A&E channel uh, as pl- had planned to do a docu-series called Generation KKK and in it they were going to explore different families and individuals trying to leave the organization. That's what they say. And everyone in polite society went absolutely nuts insisting that it humanizes hate groups. And normalizes their message. Annie ended up canceling the whole thing, not due to all the outrage, but because they found out that producers had made payments to members of the KKK for their participation in the series. I was talking about this to my family over the uh, Christmas break. It was we had like a really great debate. What the distance between exposure and normalization? Something like the A&E program, there are people who need to know about the KKK because when we don't talk about them, they end up in the goddamn Senate and an advisor to the president. Like they just sort of snake their way in. Um, so something like A&E, like could that have been a helpful show? But how do you spread information about the KKK without spreading their message, which I think a lot of people believe those things go hand in hand. So I guess the question I want to discuss with you guys is like, how do we educate ourselves about the negative forces in our society without humanizing their bad actors? And then the thing that my cousin said when we were talking about this was like, well, do we need to ed- educate ourselves about them at all? Which I was like, whoa. But what do you guys think? Well, I would agree with your kind of initial premise. Like, I think the answer is yes. We do need to educate ourselves. I asked seven questions. Okay, so that one. (laughs) No, your initial question. I mean, I think you started off with it. I I think that 
you know, I do believe there's that cliche about light being the best disinfectant. And I, I really think it's true. And if we pretend things don't exist, then, you know, it's similar again to another cliche about, you know, those who don't understand or study history are condemned to repeat it. Um, we, we have to know what's going on. Now, you know, my understanding of this story, it sounds to me from, from what I've read, obviously I don't have any intimate knowledge of what happened here, but a e it sounds like was pretty responsible in, the ter- in terms of they announced they were going to do this and then they got pushed back from, you know, anti-hate groups. And then they changed the title and like they kind of, it seemed like it, it kept evolving in response to people's concerns. And, you know, what the, they, they changed the title from Generation KKK to Escaping the KKK, a documentary series exposing hate in America. Um, you know, they were going to focus on people trying to get out of the organization. It sounded to me like this, If I think, yes, you have to do it, or we're, let's say we're better off exposing these things. And if you're going to expose it, you need to do it with a critical eye. And it sounded to me like they were trying to do that. So, um, you know, I mean they end up, they're not going to air it because of, you know, this went against policy and that's all fine. But I really come down on, we have to educate ourselves about, about threats and hatred out there. If we ever hope to eradicate them. Well, I think the problem though with Annie, and I think you're giving them more credit than is due because remember Annie also have duck dynasty. The problem with (laughs) these shows is that it's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of putting on a television show because as much as people feel like, oh, we need to educate and we need to inform, the primary value for that show is to bring eyes and audience for advertisers. That's, that's the singular goal of every single television network. Um, those other mission statements are sort of incidental to that. And one of the reasons why Annie was forced to change the top, change the title was because it was, it was choosing entertainment. It wanted as many eyes to watch it as possible, which is why it was like, let's do generation XXX because it was trying to sexy it up. It was trying to KKK. Yeah. It was trying to make it, you know what I mean? It was trying to make it um, celebratory in a certain way. And it was trying to kind of craft this narrative where you essentially would have to take these people into your heart. That's, that's, the, that's that model. That's the model of those shows. They become lovable losers. And when well, people become lovable losers, you're not playing on the same, you're not using the same parts of the brain, brain that you think you want to go for. That's not but, what's happening. But, okay, so this is, but this is the crux of the matter. Can we only talk about white supremacists and KKK and the KKK as the boogeyman in the closet? Is that the only way that we can discuss them? These are human beings, but how do we discuss what they believe and the way that they grow up and their culture without necessarily humanizing all those things? I think but that's the problem here. But you can hu- see my thing is you can humanize. But first and foremost, I'm annoyed by the fact that we continue to talk about the KKK as if they're not a terrorist organization. Because the question, let me ask you this. Would Annie put on a show about ISIS? Let's humanize the people who are participating in that organization. The question I want to ask you, Trisha, in response to the questions you're raising, which I think are really good ones, is 
you know, there, there are documentaries that I've seen on HBO. Now, HBO is maybe arguably a different animal, you know, different business model. Um, but, you know, I've watched documentaries about Scientology uh, and about the Catholic Church and how it covered up abuse and rape and that kind of thing. Um, I think, and I did not see this, but even in the in the series Vice, they did have someone embedded with ISIS. But in the things that I've seen, like the, I'll just use the one about Scientology, which I did watch. You know, it showed. I think it, it very much showed like why people believe in this and like what, for lack of a better term, the merits might be. But coming away from it, there was no question that I felt like. I I understand how some people may have gotten sucked into this, but oh my god, this is awful. Like unequivocally, that's how I felt. And I'd be surprised if anybody left watching it feeling otherwise, unless they were already an adherent to Scientology. So I guess my question back to you, Trisha, is like, I feel like there are models of of doing it. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I do think the KKK should always be shown as a terrorist organization. That's what it is. It's what it always has been. But like, don't you think there are models of doing documentaries like this that they show how people get into certain things, but they still show them to be as awful and unacceptable as they are. Wait, before Trisha answers though, Jason, I just want to push back. Trisha, you can make this part of your argument. Never forget like the teen mom series. Yep. Um, Jersey shore. Yep. The, the, what the fucking the Hills. Yep. Well, wait, uh, these aren't documentaries. You're talking about a totally different genre. Um, no, but that's what Annie was. That but, was the model that uh, Annie. Was but well, I didn't know that. But I guess what I'm saying is like I'm just kind of blurring the lines here. It's to what Trisha said is that TV, all TV programs, every anything that's, that exists on a network has a singular purpose, and this is why Duck Dynasty exists. Right? There are people who love that show, and those are not people that the three of us personally know, and they're appealing to a sector of the population that doesn't usually get appealed to because they want their money. And so like the, 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 the shows that I brought before are reality shows. Yes, but they're kind of using the same kind of model. This model is what we recognize to sort of humanize people, even as we despise them. Yep. I, it's worth saying that the teen moms all went on to great success. You know, they all had products that people bought and while not necessarily someone you want to emulate, it was someone that has brought into your consciousness and the choices that they made while you wouldn't make them were sort of, I don't want to say appealing, but understandable. So yes, two things. One, I do think, Jason, your your initial question to me, is there a form that fit um, treating the KKK in a particular way? I think there is a format that fits that that fits how you should treat the KKK. I just don't happen to believe that KKK members, people who are sympathetic to KKK would find that appealing. And that's not what marketers want. Marketers are looking to create a program that's going to get them a KKK audience. That's what they're doing. And so if you want to do that, what A&E was attempting to do was very much the ilk of the teenage mom thing or the duck dynasty model. Well, these are lovable losers really who have just quirks in their personality, but they're authentic, their their authenticity, their authentic humanity, which we all understand. We all understand that they're human beings. I get that. But these are people who are participating in an organization for whatever reasons, which we will probably, we would have probably seen in their lives and had compassion for them. But this is not an organization that has any other end, but the annihilation of others. 
So while I might be able to go on that journey with them and probably find things to relate because who doesn't have an overbearing father? Who doesn't have like fears for their children? All of those kinds of humanizing elements that would have been used in the show. Obviously, we would have responded to it. We are human beings. We will respond to that. But at all points in time, we have to be able to remind ourselves that these people want the annihilation of Jews and people of color. And so everyone can be humanized. If, if, you know, if we had an opportunity to go back and film Hitler's family, I'm pretty certain that if we, if we, if we stay tightly, tightly focused on Hitler and his family and his inner circle, we would have felt connected to those people because we're human beings. But if you don't pull back the landscape a little bit and, and frame these people within the context of what their organization is really about, then you're doing them a disservice. And those shows never do that. They never pull back. They stay so tight and they make it seem so human and so individualistic that I think it, it I do think that that's where the normalization comes in because it just makes it seem like quirks. And it's not they're, a quirk. They're quirky, they're quirky racists. Like yeah, they're, it's, it's not they're a race. They're just, what happens with those shows and the, all the other shows I said, it's sort of like you watch Jersey Shore, whatever. I've never seen an episode. But you watch them and it. they fight over boys. They fight over girls. They have fights with their moms. They're just like me. Yep. And that's where the danger begins. Like, I don't know. So – Jason, I understand what you're saying about Vice and the rest of that. Vice in particular, by the way, is great. That's my media recommendation. That's my low-key media recommendation. <laughs> um, it's really great because it does present things in a particular way. Like I saw they did something on Boko Haram. And I mean, they got in there and they talked to people. And at no point in time was I interested in, <laughs> one, uh, understanding those people as human beings, or two, like nothing about the topic appealed to me. I was just receiving information. Vice is great. Um, so maybe that's the model they should have gone for, but that's not the model Annie was going for. It seemed to me like it was very going to be, it was very much going to be in like the teen mom vein, which is sort of like we're putting these people up here because they're horrible, but also they're just like you. So, so. I, I accept all of that. I've never seen Duck Dynasty. I'm not familiar with A&E. So, I mean, if that's the case, I think we, we have consensus about that. I think to go back to your initial question about do we need to educate ourselves, I think the answer is yes. Sounds like this format is not the format to do it. But I still think it's in our interest if the, if the information is presented in a way that is accurate um, and, and that is comprehensive in the ways that I think you're talking about, Tricia, when you say pull back then I think the answer is yes, we do need that information to understand these kinds of forces that do exist in our society and do influence events and, you know, that we could find ourselves being influenced by more than we might realize if we didn't know about them. But how do we talk about them? I think we can talk about, you know, there's a perfect example. Um, right now there's another show on and it's about Scientology and it is with Leah Remini. Uh, is it on Annie? It's pro oh, I think it's on. Um, it's, she it's spun on that show. into a show, huh? Yes, it's on a show. Wow. And what's really great about that show is that it's it's asking you to explore Scientology from the perspective of the people who have left it. Okay, and at the same time, you understand why those people were initially attracted to Scientology in the first place. So you're actually getting both sides on some level, but obviously you're getting the disaffected follower, right? 
But these mm-hmm. people have been in it for 50 years. They explain to you why they're there, why they went, what was appealing about it. But at the same time, they're also showing you the dark side. And at no point in time am I watching this thinking, I want to be a Scientologist. Because yeah. I think it's doing a really effective job of showing you the dark side, so much so that the dark side is not really worth what you, it's not worth the good you know there's that obviously things have good and bad but the the bad for me is clearly more overwhelming right and and you're knowing and you know it before you go in that's the problem with some of these spaces is that you don't know the dark side before you enter so you're actually not able to make a good choice scientologists don't know what's going on and they're encouraged not to know right actually that's actually part of the religion part of the religion part of what's built into it is ignorance you cannot search about scientology online you can't do any of those things so you actually can't find out the negative experiences people have had and so i think a similar model can be done with the kkk but i think at the end of the day i also believe that you're not really going to be able to explore the kkk because the kkk is part and parcel of america and if you really want to unmask the KKK, you might have to unmask more than you want. There's <laughs> going to be stuff under there. You're right? That, I mean, uh, it's that you don't want to get too close you to. You might not want to get too close to. And I, you know, and 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 I, I hate to say this and cuz we this comes up a lot and I I always flinch when I hear it. I know KKK people are human beings. So when people say, "Oh, you're humanizing." I don't mind humanizing. I can I can actually handle humanization because i don't believe in dehumanizing at any level for anything but but well wait i'm gonna jump all over your shit right now sure okay so you believe in humanizing i do but so now but i feel like you want to stop short of normalizing no no humanizing is different from normal first and foremost yes yeah that people are people mix those terms up because what happens to me is when you say that the kkk is somehow inhuman that's not the case. These people, these people are among us. We can't tell them. Yeah, it's not helpful. Yeah, it's, it's not helpful. Like yeah, way. and it's also, it wasn't helpful for us to have painted the Germans that way, right? Because now people can't understand how they might be living in a society that's a precursor to World War II Germany. No, can, right? I, just, can I just say, I, I totally agree. A, a couple days ago, I saw this movie. This will be my low-key media recommendation. Uh, Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. The Conspiracy with Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci. I'd never heard of it before. It's about the meeting where the Nazi leaders decided that the final solution was to kill all the Jews in Europe. Final, and, yep. And um, and it did humanize them. Like you saw, you know, the different fears of the people at the table and the competing political interests between the SS and the Nazi party leaders and, and government leaders. But then in the end, these men around this table came to consensus that the most efficient and effective way to make Europe a better place was to kill all of the Jews in the most efficient way possible with gas chambers. And I thought it was very well done. And, and I, so I'm agreeing totally with what you're saying, Trisha, because it did humanize them, but there's no way you finish that movie and think like, Oh, that, now I get like, you're like, Oh my God, like how horrific that these human beings came together to make a decision like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I don't want people to, I hate, I've always hated the idea that the Germans were monsters. I've always hated that because it really, first of all, it lets us off the hook. Right. And then second, it doesn't allow us to explore what we have in common with them. And so 
for me, I get that the KKK and members of the KKK will see to a certain point of view. But let's not, and this is part of what's been confusing to me right now, is that all of the stressors that KKK members experience, everyone does. Mm -hmm. Everyone else experiences those exact same stressors. Yeah. But we don't choose the dark side. Right. We, don't mm -hmm. we don't turn around and say, your annihilation will make my life better. Right. Which, well, by the way, is part of the grief and that a lot of people are feeling post-election because we all understand, quote unquote, this working class bullshit that everyone is selling us. Everyone is fearful of their their bank accounts, except for rich people, which is not that many of them. Right. So it's like more of us are not rich. So we all understand our anxieties when we look at our paychecks, when we wonder if we're going to have savings, when we wonder if we're going to be able to retire, all of those things. But you and I are not sitting around going, who can we make a scapegoat? Mm -hmm. And so for me, those are the kinds of questions that I want us to ask around the KKK. I don't care that a KKK member is feeling Ajita because he can't get his son to stay in the KKK. What the fuck do I care about that? that kid, <laughs> listen, if the kid is, doesn't want to be a part of the KKK, good for him. It's a terrorist organization. Like, yeah. it's not a good thing. Ultimately, it's not a good thing. I don't care about the exploration of it. But you know what? I've always said that American culture loves gangsters, which is why I never watch mobster shows. I never found them appealing because I could never, ever forget that they were criminals at the... <laughs> At the base of it, I'm like, but, I know you love Tony Soprano, but he's a killer. <laughs> but you wrapped right around to the, what I was saying, is that how do you humanize a subject without normalizing what you're seeing? So, because everyone, the country went nuts over the Sopranos, right? Because it's like, they love the character of Tony Soprano and everyone else on the show. But it, in, and I said this last week with Westworld, you see enough of that, it becomes instructive. Like we've become, perhaps we've become inured to organized crime. Because yes. we are aware of, so, but this is the thing. So this is, this is my question, Jason. How do we, how do we, okay, fine. Let's say we humanize these people, right? We humanize their story because I'm with you, Tricia. When you put them as monsters, we can't actually access that. And we become blind to how it enters our society. But so Jason, this is the question I, I'm asking you. How do we humanize without normalizing? Well, I, I think it, I think you you show the very human, re, you know, uh, to use Trisha's term, stressors that people are under, and so you see that common humanity, and then you show how ideology and the effects of that ideology that the person turned to, and you show here's one group of people feeling those stressors, and here's what they turn to normal unquote which is less destructive which is less hateful which is less murderous and then these people that are the subject of this documentary or whatever they're turning to this and if you take this to its logical conclusion here's why it's so awful what this topic needs is a documentary like 13th something where someone can talk to actors in the organization people connected to it and present the facts alongside with some sort of narration that gives you a history so that you have a, a full understanding of it. I, I just think the way that A&E tried to go about it, they, it would have been more popular than 13th and more people would have seen it than 13th, but then it just runs the risk of us becoming inured to these, to these sorts of things, I think. 
What's I 13th? You, I don't even know what that is. What's that? Oh, thir- we talked about 13th a couple of weeks ago. It is the documentary by, um, who did it? Ava DuVernay. Yes, Ava DuVernay. She uh, explores the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which oh, abolished slavery unless you are imprisoned, which then gave rise to the prison industrial complex as it relates to Black people. Um, th- that's like probably the only way that I would be satisfied, this topic being discussed and introduced to people. Can I just, and I also need to make a point. One of the things that happens in something like a Sopranos is that when you center, quote unquote, the bad guy, you make the audience fully buy into his pain and his stressors. And you want his pain and his stress to be alleviated because you now feel compassion for him and you feel connected to him. However, you are not aware that in alleviating his pain, he is going to have to go out and victimize someone, right? So you're sitting around going, you're actually begging for him to do, the th- to do his job, to do the thing that he needs to do, which is to go kill, mm-hmm. which is why that model doesn't work because you have only humanized one person. You haven't humanized his victim. And so, you know, to Jason's point about you would have to actually have, you would have to actually show the natural extension of where a KKK's action is going to lead. You'd also have to ex- explain their their ideology. Oftentimes, yeah. those ideologies don't get explained in the in that in that media in that in that type of format. There's no space for you to actually unmask the actual ideology. People have an idea about what they think the KKK is, which is why they can have warm and fuzzy feelings, but they don't actually know what the end game is. What is the end game of the KKK? And that needs to always be a constant because I can relate. I'm sure I could watch a documentary about the KKK and actually like some of the people especially if they're attractive, because you know how your brain works. What's right? happening? What's <laughs> going on right now? Let's, Where did this come from? Wait, wait. Hello? Let's, let's, remember, <laughs> let's remember that a part of the joke was how many people found the blonde Nazi in Schindler's List attractive. We knew what he was doing, but you were placed in the space where you were. Are you, talking, are you talking about that girl Trevor Noah was inter- uh, interviewing? No, 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 not that oh, okay. Nazi. But the Nazi in um, the Nazi in Schindler's <laughs> List, you know, um, the one that was played by Ray Fiennes. I yeah. mean, so one of the things that we all have to understand is that these media, the, the media works on us in a certain way. It really does, you know. And just like how you watch um, magazine covers with models who have been shaped and constructed for your consumption. That's what's going to happen in A&E. A&E was going to construct this show to generate emotions in you. And so you are going to feel a level of ownership of people who, not that you should despise, but you should really fear. You should fear that you should fear the outcome of what they want. But they Look, were never going to remind you of that. Annie was never going to make a show that made you disgusted because then you didn't. Then you would not sign on to see their detergent commercials or whatever. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, and at the end of the day, I think that's that's what you always have to ask yourself when you're watching a TV show. As much as you think that show is going to really sort of unmask something for you, if there's an ad that is going to be placed in the midst of that show, it's going to be damn hard for that show to really take you to the next level. It really is. It's a very if good it, point. It, it just, you, that's the nature of the beast. Yep. Now, now, a very good point. 
what you say with Vice, Jason, I think it does. I think Vice, it's like it's there's no advertising between it. Right. HBO doesn't have have ads. And let me just say, Vice is hard to watch, <laughs> and it should it's, be. These and they don't they don't be. fuck around on Vice. I will say, don't have your kids in the room because like Vice pulls no punches. They will take you. They will take you to the site of a terrorist attack. The pe- camera will pan over severed bodies. heads, like parts of bodies. Just it's unbelievable. It's as close as you can get to reality in that kind of medium. But there are zero ads because they don't want to be beholden to anybody. Could you imagine if there were ads during that? Yeah. Who would advertise? I and they'd, mean, they'd be like, or the advertiser would be like. <laughs> The advertiser would be like, we really like what you're doing, but could you just like take out all the dead bodies things? <laughs> <laughs> and already, and already reality is being constructed for the viewer. Yeah, it's a great point. Good job, everybody. KKK, done. So, Sorry. KKK, KKK, I wish. Check. Don't apologize to them. <laughs> so- <laughs> Actually, they, I don't even have to apologize. They've already won. They, the show doesn't get to air and they got paid. That's, That's true. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. They walked away with the money. They yep. walked away with the money, and now, uh, and I- I'll give it. I'll give it. By the time this airs, it's uh, you know people are going to be calling for the tapes. It's already taped. There's going to be a segment of population who's going to want to really want to see it. And they can release it, and they'll pop what they. If I were, if oh, I they'll were, release. Oh yeah. No, if I Digitally, were, they, I would just no. I would just do um, cleared straight to DVD, straight to DVD yeah. release, because um, that already happens. And, 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 you know, and that's possibly a model. That's a model that you could, you know, you can engage in. If you do straight to DVD, then people willfully go out and get that. And then you, yeah. you can't. And it's not on the airways. Yeah. If you want it, here it is. Okay. So moving on to our next topic, 2016 is the bloodiest, deadliest year on record for celebrities and famous people. Uh, it's one right after the other dropping dead. And the last week of the year, we had uh, Carrie Fisher and George Michael, who died on Christmas Day. George Michael, of course, the beloved pop store formerly of Wham! And then later of My Secret Fantasies. And the eulogies poured in (laughs) on the 26th, remembering George Michael as this unapologetic queer artist who took inspiration from funk and soul performed by African-Americans, but didn't appropriate it in the way that we're constantly talking about today. So it got me thinking about this idea that George Michael is being lauded as being someone who was inspired but didn't wholesale steal from people of color. My question to you guys is what is the tension between inspiration and appropriation? There's this idea of authenticity and it's a currency we expect the most successful artists to trade in. But why, why is that? Like they are performers and they are trying to make money. They are trying to be appealing to you. What's the value of authenticity when it comes to celebrity? And last thing I'll say about this is like, George Michaels was very open about his inspiration. He was inspired by Prince when he recorded the Faith album back in the late 80s. And he's lauded by the idea like he has this particular sound and you can hear the Prince influence in some of the songs. You know, decades later, Justin Timberlake releases his thing, says that he's inspired by Michael Jackson. And the first video and the first song, critics were like, you know, you just wholesale ripped him off. That's an interesting tension there. What do you guys, what are your ideas about this? Authenticity, a a bullshit or not? It's such a good question. I think it is a bit of bullshit. And I'm reminded, I was was never a David Bowie fan, but I heard this interview with him on Fresh Air um, on NPR. And 
uh, you know, actually someone else who died somewhat recently. And he was saying how, you know, he became popular at a time when a lot of popular uh, artists, rock artists were like wearing jeans and t-shirts. And it was kind of, it was becoming a thing to like not dress up for your performance. And he said he never did that because he thought it was bullshit. He said, all performance is artifice. So by its very definition, Right. That's right. So like, why would you pretend you're now like artificially pretending that you're authentically just like the audience? That kind like of the performance, the performers are pretending, Oh, I was just sitting in here reading a book, but I guess I should perform for 35,000 people. Hey, how you doing? St. Louis? Like, obviously no. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I think, I think authenticity is, is always, you know, a kind of negotiation. And I think it's very debatable whether, I mean, whether you can ever truly measure it. What I will say is I'm reminded years and years ago, I was at the Baltimore book festival and Amiri Baraka, formerly known as Leroy Jones, the poet, um, he, he read some of his poetry there. And I remember he made a statement and he, he said that there's nothing wrong with artists borrowing from and building on what our other artists have done. And he was talking about this, this in the context of black artists, poets, singers, I'm sorry, of white artists, poets, singers, et cetera, um, using, you know, black music, black art and building on that. He said, the problem comes when people don't get paid for their contribution. And what's been problematic in the United States is that, You've had white artists make a lot of money just repurposing or building on contributions by black artists, and the black artists never get paid. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were going to use that as a metric, I would actually say George Michael is probably, you know, if we had a spectrum, <laughs> I think like he's he's close to the like in the clear. I mean, he he clearly did credit a lot of black artists. He did that openly. He did duets with black artists and everyone got paid. Um, you know, the only, the only thing that I can think of that I've always found problematic is as far as I can tell, he never credited the chorus of freedom to the lyrics from Think by Aretha Franklin, which it comes straight from that. But that's like the only example I can think of. And that's, you know, relatively early in his career. And I'm overall, I'm a fan of George Michael. So I, I'm not too bothered by the authenticity thing. The only, the only, the last thing I'll say is that in the kind of obituaries of him, there's there, I think as you alluded to, Chris, there's been like a real celebration of his authenticity. I think it's maybe overstated. And again, we could say whether that's even worth talking about, but I mean, I think authenticity for him as with many, it's like, it was really an evolution. I mean, he didn't come out right away. He was outed involuntarily. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, but that's the only the only mark I can find on him is that that Aretha Franklin think and then she did a, a duet with him, so I'm sure all was fine between them. Mm-hmm. Trisha, inspiration versus appropriation. But now I'm stuck on the authenticity question. Well, it's it's I think it's part and parcel. It will get us back there. But go ahead. I'll lead us well, back there. I, I think and I think the reason why I think I'm stuck on the authenticity is because appropriation, if someone appropriates something then it feels like it's a mask and that it's something that you can take on and off, which suggests inauthenticity, right? Oh, I mean, getting back to what Jason said earlier, these people are performers. They put masks on, they take masks off, they're performing for you. 
Oh, but that's different. I, I mean, I, because I think part of the part of what's um, problematic, and I think sometimes people don't really quite understand this, is the nature of the media environment in which people are now living. So that performing is a, now a twenty four seven thing as a musician, where you are now to you're not supposed to have like a face that I'm supposed to see publicly, and it needs to be an extension of what you're doing on stage. So questions mm. of authenticity become really challenging in that environment because then you're supposed to always be on, right? Whereas, no, well, think about it. Think about the fact that picture a time when you as a musician could go away, make your art, and then the only time I have access to you is when you're performing it on stage. The 70s into the early 80s. So questions of authenticity and inauthenticity then become really sort of ridiculous, right? Because I'm only accessing you as a performer. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Right. So like you're, so what you're suggesting is that perhaps we were not concerned about this in say the sixties. No, because, because we, we access people as performers in a very different way. Like I plunked down my dollars and I'm going to see you. Mm-hmm. Right. And even if and you're I, as authentic as you're going to be, because you're in front of me doing your thing, doing your thing, and you're, giving, you're giving me all the information I'm actually receiving on you comes from you in, that, in this moment, in this moment. And I get to consume you That's and I don't have to be I don't have to worry about whether this is something you're putting on because I'm simply consuming you in concert. I'm consuming you on a TV show. I'm consuming. But now we are consuming people 24 seven. And the expectation is that they're supposed to sort of own that part of themselves all the time. And so this notion of whether that's authentic now becomes a huge problem, particularly Mm -hmm. in terms of like white artists and black music, because now there's this idea of like, are you truly hip hop? Are you truly down? And so now there's this expectation that you have to perform your hip hopness everywhere. So now not only are you now maybe performing a sort of hip hop in the hip hop genre, you now need to have all the accoutrements of that, right? You might need to have a black boyfriend. You might need to live a certain neighborhood. I mean, there are all these other expectations about things that you're now supposed to bring with you when before it was simply your performance on a stage. I think part of the challenge and the problem for Justin Timberlake was because we saw Justin Timberlake grow up. And so we saw him move through musical genres. And so we can say to ourselves, that's not real because we knew where you started. You were a boy band guy and you were this thing. And now you're just like constantly unmasked. There was a sense that Justin Timberlake got on a train that was going to pay him money, you know, and I, I or, just, had, or had been on one or had been on one that was going to pay. But the but the landscape changed, yeah. right? The musical landscape mm-hmm. changed and he changed with it. So the question yeah. then become, was he authentic? I think because we no longer have access to artists simply as performers there's just a lot of burden on them now to do things. Cause let's think about it. We have not had access to George Michael in years. Really. If you think about no, it, not really. And when I he mean, was, when he was at the height of his fame, we also didn't have access to George Michael 24 seven. We had, access well, also, to, you know, I mean, it, it was the time that he was, but also it was the kind of artist he was. He was like Prince. He rejected yep. the music industry. Yeah. So when I was at my family's house, like we were all saddened by George Michael. So we just had his videos on loop. So I've seen all his videos several times and like, especially the ones that right after the faith period, he refused to appear in his videos. Yeah. Right. He always had like supermodel surrogates or whatever. And a lot of his music was about the fact that he, I mean, that's what freedom 90 is about. 
yep. about him wanting to move away from this image and the fact that he was hitting so much resistance and the bad choice it was for him to sort of sign away and be something that he wasn't. So George Michael in particular was very open about that. But Trish, I like what you're bringing up, this idea about like this nonstop performance, which then it then it begins to beg the question, well, you know, where are you on this? But also I'm interested in the race question that Jason brought up. Is it fair to say that Eminem is authentic, but Drake isn't? And why does that matter? And how are we deciding it? And, you know, we know, we, we saw Drake grow up and he talks a lot about his family. He grew up middle class, um, black, white, and Jewish. And he didn't really have a really hard life. And I'm not saying that his music is really, really hard, but sometimes when I see his presentation, I'm like, bitch, please like stop this, <laughs> you know, like stop all of that. So is he inauthentic while Eminem is authentic? Because I think those assignations give people Ajita. Well, I think you have to ask yourself, I think there are different burdens on um, the hip hop genre, right? Cause Oh, I know. I'm, I'm about to. I'm about to step into something really bad. Okay, so for example, classical music, right? Where's, the, where's this going? Let's think about classical music, and let's think about people of color in classical music, and how challenging mm-hmm. that is, right? Because there's an expectation that classical music is in somehow is is in some ways linked to race and ethnicity heavily, right? So that it can be really difficult for someone who is considered an outsider to be accepted within that genre people don't often Mm -hmm. see people don't often see that that's the same thing at play in hip-hop right because hip-hop has expectations about your authentic experience so that you can be considered real in that world Mm -hmm. so i do think that there is some resistance to people performing hip-hop music who come at it from really different childhood experiences and listen it was supposed to be poor people's music right Mm -hmm. it's poor people's music and that legacy has not fully left that genre well and i there's something really interesting at work that i I don't fully understand and this goes beyond hip-hop not only was it supposed to be poor people's music and black music, but it was American music. And we saw this in the 60s, right, where American R&B, and then you had all these British groups, white English groups, come mm-hmm. to the United States and play music that had been created by black people yep, and, and make a ton of money off of it. Um, and not, it wasn't all British. I mean, you had Elvis Presley, who was American. But we have this history of... Yep. Black people create a certain type of music. White people kind of repeat it and then make so much more money. I mean, one example is like New Kids on the Block coming after New Edition. Same producer. Mm-hmm. You know, the New, New Edition did well. I mean, they were pretty popular, right? They had a lot of hits. Mm-hmm. But New Kids on the Block, I mean, and Eminem, right? When I mean, Dr. Dre, you know, publicized Eminem, Eminem went international. And I mean, just made a fortune. And I, I think Eminem's pretty talented, so I'm not saying he had no talent. But we, we have this. And the, the, what's interesting to me about hip-hop right now and about R&B is like we now have this cadre of um, black or multiracial artists from other countries, Drake, 
mm-hmm. Liana. Nicki Minaj is actually from New York, but her family's from Trinidad. And like, it's just, and these are people that are making much more money that, than a lot of African American artists making this music. So I, I don't know what point I'm making. I just find it fascinating. And there does seem to be kind of an industry and there has been, I think for a long time. Again, I think there are probably examples of this in the sixties where you have black musical entrepreneurs and black musicians who do well themselves, but then make a fortune marketing white artists. But Timberland. I, I mean, even talk about Justin Timberlake. I mean, Timberland made a lot of money off of that transition that you, that you just referenced, and and we yeah, could talk about a lot of examples I, like that. Or Blue Eyed Soul. I mean, I I do think that this is part of the problem. I mean, God, this is the tension. What I think what we cannot escape is we cannot escape the racialized nature of economics. Yeah, so re- that's why the question of appropriation always comes up, because at the heart of the appropriation question is the recognition that most people, most I'll say most white people and even black people would rather pay for someone to imitate. Yes. A black person. That's right. Than to actually pay the black person. That's ex- that's well said. That's I think what I was trying to say. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I find fascinating. So, you know, so, I mean, and I think that's why the appropriation question and the inauthenticity piece is always so problematic for, for, I'd say, white artists, because realistically, what we're asking you is, are you make, are you going to be able to make money off of the thing that we have created? And we know the truth is you will. And if you Mm -hmm. don't do the right dance, then your appropriation can, then your inspiration easily becomes appropriation because first you have to honor and understand that. If you don't honor and understand that as an artist, then it, you can easily slide into appropriation. And I find that the artists who have been well-received by the Black community or communities of color uh, are the artists who understand that transaction and speak to it aloud, thereby giving us permission to love them fully. So I think David Bowie did that. David Bowie was the one that challenged MTV about its its refusal to acknowledge black music. Which, oh my gosh, I've got to find the link yes. to that interview, to that. which he did in the early 80s. Yeah, so when you are an artist that can speak to your influences, and actually I'd say the Rolling Stones did that. I think they were some of the people who taught Americans how to appreciate black music. I think that's true. I think because that. they said, Hey, what are you talking about? You don't like you don't understand why we're playing this music. We've been listening to black music, but your racism has gotten in the way of you even taking something that is authentically American. So now I have to pass through. You're gonna access mm-hmm. black music through pass through (laughs) because and so i I mean i think that that to my mind i've always seen that the person who has been treated well by the black community or communities of color in general i say communities of color because i don't know all the other kinds of music but I, i i assume it also happens around latino music and things like that is that if you are someone who honors the legacy you will be well regarded but if you disregard it and act as if it's something that you created, <coughs> Yazalia, then I think oh. th- I think you let you land yourself into that hot water. Yeah, although there but, are exceptions, but, I still, I mean, I, that may be true. I'm not sure if it's quite as logical as that. I always go back to Adele. I don't know that I've heard Adele acknowledge much, and I feel like she's been very popular. And look, she's super talented, 
but the voice she inhabits when she sings is definitely an African-American voice and sounds nothing like the voice she inhabits when she talks. Oh, wait a minute though. That's her voice. Like that's how she sings. I mean, what are you taking aim at? She's doing soul music. She's doing soul music. music. She sounds like a black woman, like an African-American woman. Well, so does Rick Astley. Rick Astley sounds like an African-American man. I thought the first time I heard never going to give you up, I thought that was a black man. So what are you, what are you saying? Well, I'm, though, the, but the there's only a thing difference. Wait, let me just say the only she thing I'm saying. I've never heard Adele acknowledge that she's inhabiting. Sounds like a black woman. Yeah, I've never heard her. Not, not just I not just say. That. I think what Trisha was saying, if I understand, Trisha was saying that artists who acknowledge that they are their art is benefiting from the contributions of African Americans are more accepted and consumed by African-Americans. Okay. I have never heard Adele make that acknowledgement, but I do think she gets consumed by a lot of African-Americans. I think in a different way, though. What I'm saying, there are two ways that you can do that. One way is you can be um, authentically yourself, which is what Adele is, is that she's never at any point in time letting you know. She's not pretending. I mean, I hate to say it. She's not doing... She's. It's the opposite of an Oreo. She's not pretending that she is somehow inhabiting this black space and she is an extension of black people that's insulting and that's appropriation she honors it by simply acknowledging her the 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 legacy and the tradition in which she comes out of same thing amy winehouse did at no point in time are you sitting around going are these black or white women no part of um i think part of appropriation is confusing people with your ethnicity sometimes and playing that line which i think justin timberlake attempted to do i think that's a narrow definition of appropriation i don't agree with that i'm not saying it's a narrow i'm you you can agree with it or disagree with it but i think that's part of what played out with certain people when they appropriate music like for example i think that that i i think it's important like for example you ask why is somebody like eminem eminem seemed to have had a real experience which naturally led him to the music he was really listening to right really performing and then we performing and we as being authentic authentic because it's not something it doesn't feel like something he put on so it comes out of a real lived experience. Weirdly enough, Adele also feels authentic, but by going at it from a completely different way, which is that musically she seems fully in, in, in like engaged in that world. Even if I would say to myself, I don't necessarily assume Adele was raised around black people. Do you and, know what I mean? It's, and, and that's Jason, really Adele does not sound authentic to me. Like I don't. Oh, wait, wait, Jason. This is I, I know it's a fuzzy line, but like I, I don't see it the same way you're seeing. Jason, I think the difference also is that it's in Adele's. Like you're taking, you're taking issue with the way her voice sounds. I'm not really, I don't know what to do with that because when she opens her mouth to sing, that is what's coming out. And, and she probably listened to all the same music we listened to growing up. Like that's fine. But if in her videos, she had like, if in her videos, like she tanned her skin or wore like a (laughs) weave and like did all like these historically like sort of black presentations, like in with her singing, then that would have been a kind of appropriation. But Adele has never presented herself as anything other than this British chick from around the way who sounds like that. And so it it doesn't, like you're connecting Adele with African-Americans is not a connection I ever made. Like Adele is very much a white artist and she does soul music, but in much of the way that I experienced George Michael, like I don't ever look at Adele and be like, 
please, bitch, stop this. Stop this. And, uh, and the other end of the spectrum is someone like Iggy Azalea, who is performing a kind of blackness. Yeah. And she doesn't understand that because she's Australian. And when you leave the country, like these ideas become really diffuse and hard to hold on to. She doesn't understand that. She's just like, well, this, I, she's very much, she says, I'm a performer and I'm performing a character and this is what yeah. the character is. Right. And she yeah. doesn't, uh, she's not aware of yeah. what that she's sounds like. She's playing blackface or she, I yeah. mean, or, I mean, it's funny that she's unaware because her producers are fully aware because they're all black. Oh God. Her, oh, please. Her, <laughs> well, again, that's, this, I feel like her producers are aware. They're in the bank line. Yeah, cash exactly. in the checks, just aware. Like, just like yeah. Timberland gets in the bank line with a lot of non-black artists. I, I totally agree. I don't know. I mean, we don't have to fixate on Adele. I just, I don't. I do think that there's some, there, is, there is an you interesting. Hate Adele. No, I don't, I don't hate but her. There, there is a, there is a question though, Jason, of where that line is, because it's a little bit of like, I mean, it's a little bit of the Usher versus Justin Timberlake thing. You know, it's like, I'm still mad about that. I mean, of course, but I think one of the things I don't know what you're talking about, mad about what? Well, just the bare fact of like Justin Timberlake came out. Everyone's like, I love his album. I was like, his album should be called We've Been Doing This and it's called Usher. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, the honest to goodness truth is that, and I've said this before and it's going to be uncomfortable, but white people lack imagination when it comes to certain spaces. I'm just telling you, if you see all, if you see all black people in a movie, it's a black movie. And if I see all white people in a movie, I don't say it's a white movie. I say it's a movie. movie, (laughs) Um, And that's just, I, sorry, that's just what it is. And so if white people want to consume something, it is easier for them to consume it. If it is done by someone who looks like them. Yeah. No, we've seen that again and again, and again and again, that time and time again. And so Justin Timberlake will necessarily make more money. Because he will all he will get white people and he will also get black people who like a certain kind of music. And so there you go. <laughs> you there you go. Know? There you go. That's what crossover is. At the end of the day, crossover is that. Now I'm not certain I feel like I feel like we didn't I don't know the way to solve this problem, but I don't know if the three of us answered the question. What's like, the question? Okay, let's let's go out on this, right? Both of you. In considering our our artists and we've been focusing on music so let's just stay there why is authenticity important it's important. Like, why do why do we care so much let's let, pause pull back what is art first ask yourself that question that's why authenticity is important uh, you know what i i'm gonna say something very different what are you gonna i say? don't know that authenticity is important except I think where it gets important is in this question of appropriation. Yeah. And, and again, like so many things in our society, this would not be a thing if we didn't have a history of white supremacy. Yeah. But because we have a history uh, of black people, people of color, not getting their fair share, not getting paid for their labor, you know, the country being built on their backs, different structures being built on their backs. Because of that history, when white artists are benefiting disproportionately from art that uh, owes a significant amount to the work of black artists. That to me is what's really problematic. So I think authenticity fuzzy, you know, whether someone's authentic is that I I think these are all interesting questions. What, what, 
what I think is problematic. And I think if there's an action to come out of this, what I'd love to see we as consumer as consumers do differently is make sure we're investing our money in people who actually have talent and where people are actually getting a fair share for their contribution. I think Jason's right. Quest, yeah, Chris. I like that a lot, actually. I, I oh think you're God, right. You. You Again, know I don't know what Reels thinks. Sorry, I'm going to keep <laughs> I'm a complex now. I barely care what you two think. I just want to know what you know what? I think you and Reels need to be on a podcast and me and Geneva need to be on a podcast. And it would just like just scream at each other. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have It's fine. No, I was saying that nobody wonders if rock stars are authentic. And as a matter of fact, whatever. As a matter of fact, they're not, right? Like they they're get on not, stage right. and they rock out like crazy and they go home and they open up their 501, 401ks and be like, mm, look at all this cash. So the, the, the question, I think you're right. I think the question of authenticity really only comes up when there's that tension around inspiration, appropriation and all of those elements. And not just around black and white, because I think that that also happens in other, that happens for other act, um, performers as well. Agreed. Hmm. That was fun, guys. Good job. Mm. That was fun. That was good. It was really interesting, actually. So I know that was really great. I was so, interested in our own conversation. <laughs> I know. I well, I would hope that always happens. It is, but you know, sometimes we go down paths that are unexpected. And, and you check out. Is that what you're saying no, no, right no. now? <laughs> no, but we go down paths that are un, uh, unexpected, and it's also a surprise yeah. in the middle of the conversation. I like that. So now we're going to move directly to media recommendations. And that is something that you've seen, heard, or read. You think other people should see, hear, or read. I'm going to go first. I'm going to recommend a graphic novel called Isnana the Weir Spider, uh, written by my good friend Greg Anderson Ellisi. It's sort of like a superhero story about this character named Isnana and his father, Anansi the Spider, who is a character from African folklore. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea of the story is that there's a world or dimension where all like these tales and stories exist in real time and our dimension has been breached and these characters have gotten out and they're loose in our world. And Isnana is the hero who is trying to fix that, but primarily in the story that's been written, it's fighting against sort of the bad guys who come out of that dimension. I really like this book. Blatantly speaking, this is about black characters And seeing black characters in a comic book, even after all these years, is still thrilling to me because you don't often get to see it. And you don't get to see a lot of black heroics in the same way. And I love the connection to Afro-Caribbean folklore. I just think that is great. There's a lot of things about Afro-Caribbean folklore that the media gets wrong, specifically around African gods and religion and voodoo and the rest of it. And it's just kind of cool to read something that goes in a direction that is at once entertaining and educative in a particular way. So that's my media recommendation. Go read it. Ooh, fun. Well, I spent my Christmas holidays watching movies and hopefully these movies came out on Christmas day. So I'm hoping that they are going to have some legs and that um, you all are going to go watch them. I saw several movies. I saw, I saw Barry on Netflix, which was about, Barack Obama and I saw Fences and I saw Hidden Figures and while oh, I, you saw Hidden Figures and while I love Fences and I, I you know I think that definitely must be seen I am going to make a bid for everyone to see Hidden Figures 
because I, I think it's just really important to understand what we leave on the table when we really don't recognize the humanity of, of each, in each other. You know, I, I mean, this, this movie is basically about three African-American scientists who um, helped NASA in the race to space. And what's, it's, it's, as you're watching it, it is so frustrating. It is just so frustrating to watch all of the limited, they, they, they're not accessing Black people. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, what are the other solutions? What are the solutions to problems that we just haven't been able to access because we're just not giving equal opportunity to everybody? Mm-hmm. You know? like, it's so frustrating to watch. And when you understand how vital it was for especially one of the women to help get us to win the race, it's, it's the race to the moon would not have been possible without this woman. And so you have to ask yourself, what are the other things are that we are not achieving simply because we are not allowing children of color to fully thrive in this society? So mm-hmm. it's just really fascinating. I mean, it's well done. Taraji P. Henson is wonderful in that lead role. And um, um, so um, who you know who's turning out to be a fantastic actress in a very subtle, quiet way is Janae. The singer. I did not. Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet, right? Janelle Monet. Yeah. Janelle. I like that. Janelle. I know, right? Janelle Monet. It's when you don't. It's for when you don't have time to say Janelle Monet. Say Janelle. Janelle Monet. So yeah, Janelle Monet. She's been great. She was great in Moonlight. Very subtle, and then she was. She's absolutely wonderful here. I mean, she plays a. She plays a. She plays a woman who's basically forcing the country to let her be an engineer. That's all she wants to do is to be an engineer. (laughs) She had to. She has to go to court to force people to do let her do that so it's just i think it's just wonderful and it's actually based on a book and i'm really excited to go and read the book and the lead character is um the the lead scientist she's still alive she's 98 years old the other two women died but the the, the catherine catherine is still um alive and well and kicking i mean it's just a wonderful story um and totally disney story so you can uh, you can, i think you can bring your your kids to see it if you have kids it's and it's just it's just great you just it just first it makes you ask yourself what else do we not know because i mean as many as many februaries as i've lived through i've never heard her story you would think, you, you know what i mean i can't believe we missed this that's awesome. I mean, it February and March. It's really great. I highly recommend it. So, you know, when it goes nationwide, and it, I think it will in the new year, please make yourself go and see it. It's just a really wonderful celebration. And I think it's also a wonderful celebration for anyone to sort of say, hey, what is my potential? What am I capable of? How do I live my best self? Because <laughs> I think, let me tell you, these three women did. That's yeah. great. I want to see that. Jason. Well, that was great. Um, so I also saw a lot of movies over the past week. Um, if you recommend a Jack Reacher movie, I'm going to reach through this <laughs> microphone. I'm going to reach right through. We've already talked about both. There are only two. Um, I'm I'm reading what I think is my favorite Jack Reacher book yet. So yet, no, that's not what I was going to bring up. Just two things. I would say I did see Rogue One. Oh yes, how was that? I thought it was great. So Rogue One was, I think, the first completely inoffensive Star Wars movie. Truly diverse cast. I really enjoyed it. But the other one I was going to say, this is a movie I wanted to not want to see, but then when it was free on Amazon Prime, I just had to see it, which was Creed. And 
I thought Creed was great. I, I thought it was so well done. And I know like Stallone got attention for his performance and I think he deserved it. It was very good. But Michael B. Jordan's performance was unbelievable. And the whole movie I just thought was so well done. There's maybe a scene or two that I could be critical of, but as a whole movie, I thought it was fantastic. And I'm, I'm not like a super Rocky fan, but like it was so well done. That's great. Mm-hmm. Now I understand why all the alt-right wants to um, boycott Rogue One. Okay. Wait, what is it? The who? The alt-right. <laughs> I'm calling them. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> you know what, what you're saying. That is? You know what it is? I don't, what do you mean? You mean the what? KKK slash Nazi? Oh, you mean white supremacists. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not interested in rebranding hate. So white supremacists. I see what you're saying. I didn't know they want to boycott it. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Got, it's got a lot of people of color who play very prominent roles. Uh, Forrest Whitaker is phenomenal as always. Um, yeah. oh, it's, it, it was very good. Just really quickly as the year is over 2016 and there is a list of everyone who died 2016. And this year kind of went really fast. For instance, David Bowie died in January. Wow. I Does that, that strike you? It was like, yeah, no, it seems was like it was four months ago. ago. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that long ago. And Prince died in April. Because they you still feeling it. I still feel the ricochet of it. I still feel elements of Prince. So it feels like it's more recent than that. Yeah, isn't that incredible though? But I just looking through that list, I was like, wait, David Bowie? I thought he died in like the summer or September. But no. This well, so, so many of the folks, Prince, Carrie Fisher, George Michael, so young. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Everyone's not, I mean, all, I, all pretty much under 60. Was it for the most part? Well, George I mean, Michael was yeah. in his early fifties. He's fifty-three. Yep. And uh, lots of and and Carrie Fisher was sixty years old. And I just want to yep. say, I know she suffered a lot with drugs and with mental illness. I thought she was much older, just from looking at her. I thought she was older too. Yeah. I thought she was much older. She was only sixty years old. And poor Debbie Reynolds. You should not watch your kids oh, go. So horrible. You should not watch your kids go ahead of you. Um. Oh, God, we lost so many people. Gene Wilder. Kevin Meany died. I forgot about that. Abe Vigoda died. Florence Henderson. Fidel Castro. Um, Fiver Schwenkel. I forgot he died, too. That cute guy from the Star Trek movies died. Uh, yeah. Of course, Muhammad Ali died. Uh, Morley Safer died. I forgot about that. Five Doris dogs. Roberts died. Yeah, Five Dog died. Gary Shandling is dead, if you don't remember. That's right, yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Nancy Reagan and uh, yeah, so many people have died. Uh, and on that note, let's <laughs> we'll have a great new year. Well, yes. you know what though? I mean, it's listen, it's a new year. We lost a lot of people, and we can lose more. We can. I mean, lose- wait, where were you going? Where were you going with that? Well, I'm just saying, you know what? A lot of um, a lot of really strong energies left us. I'm hoping that there'll be a rebirth of something fresh and wonderful coming up. I don't know. I mean, just think about it. That was a lot of strong life forces that. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah. Uh, stronger life forces, everyone, please. And on that note. <laughs> I'll do Good night. This, this is fun. Good night, everybody. Bye. See you next time. Bye. Bye.